Hello, I'm Dr. Meg McHugh and welcome to episode one of Stories from Objects. The purpose of this podcast is to celebrate, talk about and learn from the teaching collections in the department. Here we have access to three specialist teaching collections that are used regularly for undergraduate and postgraduate teaching. In this episode, we're going to introduce you to these collections and talk about the role they have in teaching and research. So I'm Jennifer Turner. I'm a PhD student and collections assistant of the Eaton Myers Collection of Egyptian Antiquities. We have a packed podcast for you today. To tell us more about our wonderful collections, we're joined by Anna Young. Good afternoon. Who is a curator at the University's Research and Cultural Collections. And we're also joined by Kate Robertshaw, Hello. who is an undergraduate research scholar who has written a report on the history of the archaeology collection in the department. You're all very welcome today. So Anna, if we can start by asking you to describe your role and RCC's role in the university. Of course. Um, so I'm collections curator um, at the Research and Cultural Collections. Um, we're the accredited museum body. Um, museums are accredited with Arts Council England. Um, who look after the, the dispersed teaching and research collections um, here on campus. Um, so we have over 26,000 objects, and of those, uh, we have about 1,500 artworks um, and artefacts um, dispersed across all three campuses um, here at the University of Birmingham. Um, they're generally displayed in departments that are relevant to their, their purpose or origins, like the archaeology collection, um, but they're also displayed in public areas, um, in the areas that people work and study. So essentially, uh, the, the campus itself is our museum. So there's four main ways that we support the university's priorities, um, through supporting research, um, teaching and the wider student experience, and also civic and global engagement. Um, naturally, we therefore work with a wide range of, of staff and academics across the university um, on the management and use of the collections. So we, we support researchers both um, at the university, um, locally and worldwide, on providing access to collections and collections-based knowledge. Um, and this also includes loaning objects um, to uh, national and international exhibitions. We're going to be talking about learning um, and teaching um, in more depth when, when we come on to, um, to talk about specifics. Uh, but the collections are used in hands-on object-based learning. Um, and that's either led by ourselves or by relevant academics in, in different departments. And that covers all five colleges across the university. Um, alongside that, and we'll talk more about this as we go along, uh, we also have a temporary exhibitions and events programme. Uh, so this introduces new audiences, um, to both to campus and to the collections. Yeah, that, that's a lot. <laughs> um, that's so... One thing that I really love this idea that, you know, the campus is your museum, that, you know, that the, the whole of the campus is something that you take care of. You know, we're, we'll talk about the Eden Myers collection and the archaeology collections in a little bit, but what other collections does uh, the RCC look after? Um, so we have kind of six main collections and then also um, smaller collections that are uh, slightly different, which I'll, I'll talk about. But we have the Campus Collection of Fine and Decorative Arts, um, the Danford Collection of West African Art and Artefacts, uh, obviously the Archaeology Collection. Uh, we also have the Historic Physics Collection, uh, the University Heritage Collection uh, and the Medical and Dental Collections. 
along with this, we then have loan collections uh, like Eaton Myers, uh, and then we have working collections like the silver and plate collection. So those collections are sort of thought of as slightly differently, um, mm. but uh, but but it's a broad range um, and it covers um, all the disciplines um, across five colleges. Wow. Um, and so is this something that's quite common across universities, having a department like this that looks after collections? I mean, there's, there's different models in different universities and, and sometimes um, uh, a, a collection will have a specific museum and, mm. and a single institution looking after that. But th there are um, many different uh, universities around the UK and, um, and internationally that have the same kind of setup as mm -hmm. us. Um, it's a different set of considerations than when you're a single-site institution. So you have a packed job. Not only are you looking after material culture that you might expect in a more traditional museum, like something like the British Museum, for example, but then you also have other factors at play. Like I know the RCC is doing, um, I don't know if it's a new installation for a new sculpture. Yeah. On, on campus? Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the ways that we do um, work with uh, different audiences um, because, as well as telling stories ourselves, it's about bringing um, other people to, to bring new interpretations and, and, and new voices. Um, so, we run an artist in residence program, um, and that's about working with our collections um, and also the other <coughs> four um, museums and collections on campus. So, that's the, the Barber Institute, um, the Labyrinth Museum. Cabby Research Library um, and Winterbourne House. Um, alongside this, we also have other residency programmes, um, and currently there's um, a, a sculpture competition going on at the moment, which is uh, a public open vote. Mm -hmm. uh, so, this is um, a new commission for a new piece of sculpture that will be in the, the Green Heart, the new open space on campus. Um, it's intended that um, the, the, the winning uh, piece. Uh, will be um, accessioned into the campus collection of fine and decorative art, um, but that's a we have a temporary exhibition at the moment mm. that, that goes into that process. Mm. RCC encourages an awful lot of student engagement, student volunteers, and I know Jen, you're a PhD student in the department, but you're also heavily involved in the RCC. I am, yes, and I'm very lucky to be. Um, so I'm involved with the Eton Myers Collection, which, as Anna said, is on loan to the University of Birmingham. Um, that's been on loan since 2011, so we're about halfway through a 15-year project with them. So I'm really fortunate to be able to, alongside my own research, be working on cataloguing and researching and digitising a collection of Egyptian objects. So it's um, a really great opportunity um, to be able to do that alongside studying ancient Egypt at the same time. Um, but I've also been able to work with RCC on various other things as well. So helping with the odd installation of an exhibition, um, helping to do things like set up the space to help uh, condition check objects. And that's all really great experience when what you are interested in is the process that museums go through mm -hmm. um, in terms of how they work with objects um, and I think even from the, the student point of view if, if I didn't have the opportunity to do any of those things I think the idea of the campus as the museum is, is totally how I see it it's all very visible and accessible and I think that's a really good thing for a university to do um, because it makes you appreciate what's there um, and the fact that you are constantly engaging with students and giving them opportunities 
to do things like what I get to do alongside my studies. Um, we'll talk about the uh, Eaton Myers collection in another episode in episode three. Um, but I know you're also working on a project yourself uh, called Research Curate. Yes, so another string to my bow is helping with um, this student-led um, cross-disciplinary network, which is a network that is a collaboration between research and cultural collections and other academic departments within the university. And this is basically to um, provide a platform for researchers and museum professionals and anyone who is interested in the heritage sector to look at things like object-based research, um, to consider things like curatorial practice, um, how we study objects and how we engage with them. So it's perfectly placed within RCC. Um, so it's a group that welcomes a variety of different people. Um, and it's an online publication at the moment which posts anything from there's upcoming volunteer opportunities with um, an institution like BMAG, to um, there's upcoming conferences and student rates um, to attend something to do with, for instance, museum and technology. Um, but we also have essays written by students or staff on various ideas to do with objects, um, object-based research or being a curator, for instance. So it's a really exciting platform that will hopefully um, grow arms and legs mm -hmm. in the next academic term um, and we are going to be doing things like podcasts as well not to jump on your bandwagon um, <laughs> jump on your bandwagon <laughs> so there'll be a little bit of, <laughs> of overlap and, but um, yes it's a really exciting platform and it's there for anyone to engage with and to make use of and hopefully it's of interest to some of your listeners as well I'm sure it will be um, and of course, we'll have the links and information up on the social media for this podcast. Um, something that um, I probably should have said a little bit uh, at the start of this podcast is the reason why uh, I chose to have this topic, teaching collections, as the first when we're going to, in later episodes, talk about Greek pottery and Roman coins and animal bones, is because I wanted to give uh, the listeners an idea of what happens behind the scenes and I just wanted to really give everyone uh, a sense of the type of activities that we all do. We naturally work with um, with academics across, uh, the, uh, across the university on, um, from different disciplines because we can't be we can't be the, uh, the sort of the providers of knowledge or specialist knowledge mm -hmm. when we have such wide collections and we will naturally um, within a university setup and within a university museum, um, be working with subject specialists, um, but you have to have um, sort of professional staff who sit alongside that, mm. um, because that in itself is a discipline. Mm. Um, but yeah, we will naturally work with with others who have more um, subject specific knowledge mm. um, and and their own uh, research to to be thinking about. But you have to have something that sits alongside that that supports it. Mm. I think that's something that you do very well, Jen, in the Eaton Myers collection, because you do have that knowledge and the understanding um, of the material, but then also you are gaining, as you said, valuable knowledge and experience in the kind of the curatorial sector. Yeah, um, and so you mentioned there the, the vast array of teaching collections that are in the various departments, um, and we have the Myers collection, of course, and the archaeology collections. Um, we'll talk in a little while 
uh, to Kate, who studied the, the provenance of these collections, uh, the archaeology collection, rather. Um, but mostly, did, did one day the university just decide to go out and buy all of this stuff that now you look after, or how has it come into the university sphere? Um, so it's come through to, to us through various methods, um, as different collections have been acquired at different times throughout the university's history, um, and for different reasons. Um, I mean, first and foremost is, or the, for the majority of objects, it's their use in teaching, but other collections have been um, acquired for different reasons. Um, so our department only came about in 1992, um, but objects have been collected since the university's earliest days. Mm. Um, so, for example, with the campus collection of fine and decorative arts, this began in the, at the university's earliest days when um, commissioned uh, portraits uh, were, were commissioned of the, the, the first university leaders. But since then, it's developed into a collection of over 1,500 artworks. Um, in terms of things, how things have actually come to us, um, then more often than not, they're acquired through gift or bequest. Um, so like a lot of museums, we don't have a huge acquisitions budget, so anything that's purchased will generally be through applying for external funds or, or specific grants. Uh, but in terms of those, those gifts or requests, then it's often through um, alumni um, or former members of staff, um, as, as Kate will probably talk about um, with her project. But as I say, it's, it's for each collection there are different circumstances and they have been gathered at different points in the university's history. Sometimes picking away um, and, and finding out the, the documentation for, for that is, um, is tricky, as, as Kate will probably go on to talk about, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. <laughs> I am currently undertaking a undergraduate research project with the Archaeology Museum and um, a brief collaboration, of course, with the RCC. Um, and basically the aim of the project really was to uncover a history behind the various artefacts within the Archaeology Museum. And this, as Anna has really touched upon, um, consists of a variety of collections that have been donated over the years of the museum's existence, which as we know dates back at to 1902, which was when it was first um, developed by a man called Professor John Hopkinson who um, brought back um, from um, his travels in the Greek island of Rhodes a variety of Greek vases um, that he had just basically found and bought, brought back to the university and said, we, you know, it would be nice to have an archaeology museum for the purpose of teaching and for the purpose of um, providing students a resource to engage with artefacts and learn on a completely different level. So I think from that perspective we can see that you know museums on the university level have been really important for that purpose of just teaching and engaging with collections. Um, but of course um, you know with the various donations from different alumni in Birmingham we've also had um, donations from people from outside the university so, um, for instance, we have the Mond collection, which um, is a group of um, Egyptian artefacts, um, which is specifically within the Archaeology Museum, so separate from Meath and Myers collection. And this was um, basically donated um, after um, Sir Robert Mond's death, um, who had been a collector of Egyptian antiquities. Um, but um, after his death, 
um, the university um, basically sent some representatives and asked if they could acquire some of these objects that now have no home and then brought them back to the museum in 1939. So you can see like a lot of these artefacts just have a long history, not just in their historical nature, but just in the way they have gone through collection after collection over mm. the years. Something that um, I'm sure we will all agree on, that I, I personally find provenance of objects fascinating in its own right. Where these objects come from, um, and the story of how they actually managed to get to their final resting place is truly fascinating. Yeah. And trying to just dig back. It's very difficult for Egyptian objects, mm -hmm. I'm sure it's very difficult for some of the Greek and Roman mm -hmm. stuff as well, but um, certainly for Eaton Myers, which I'm sure we'll come to talk about um, in a following episode, it's very tricky when the practices of collecting in the 19th century were very different to how we would collect now mm -hmm. and how we would deal with acquiring objects. So provenance is a really tricky thing for Eaton Myers in particular. But I'm sure it's a problem for archaeology for some of those objects yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think I should have expanded before. The archaeology museum does have a wide array of objects from like ancient Greece, mm -hmm. ancient Rome, Egypt and Mesopotamia. So, yeah, it is very difficult to sometimes trace exactly where they came from. And I think, I don't know if this was the case with Eaton Myers, but I know like a lot of the collections were basically acquired um, out of personal curiosity of the collectors and the, they just picked them up whilst on their travels and never really noted down any archaeological significance. Yeah, it's the same very much. <laughs> um, for the Eaton Myers collection, um, the majority of those objects come from one individual who just became an avid collector during his lifetime. Uh, it does also have objects from other collectors in there. Um, so people like um, Wainwright, who was associated with a site called Balabish, um, and another collector called Seton Carr, who actually has donated a lot of stone tools to places like the British Museum, but randomly also the Eaton Myers collection, um, and those objects come from, from all over. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, provenance is, is very tricky sometimes, but um, I think that's also a valuable thing for students to be able to engage with, is the fact that it's not very clear-cut, for a lot of ancient objects in particular, and um, that's something that I'm sure you're taught about and you read about, but to actually physically be able to engage with objects and handle them and think, well, how would you go mm -hmm. about that process of trying to establish where it comes from um, is the sort of research that actually, um, it can make you decide and it can, it can give you very valuable experience of deciding whether this is the sort of thing you want to do to engage with objects and to work in um, the heritage sector. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a very valuable thing to be able to be part of. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think this project really has taught me a lot about <laughs> that. You know, just, um, just the things you read about in ancient history, you do just come to accept like, oh, these artefacts came from such and such a place, but you never, I think if you just do that alone, think about, well, why are they there? Mm. How did they get there? And how did they come to be on display here? So I think especially, you know, just engaging with those artefacts and just asking questions, I think, at the end of the day, really has taught me a lot about that experience. And, uh, there's more of an interest, rightly so, in the provenance of objects and uh, where these, how these objects have actually come to us. Probably the most 
um, you know, well-known cases, the, the Parthenon marbles and this idea of mm-hmm. removing objects from their cultural context and then putting them into a different context can change the meaning and then museums work very hard to try and place them back into a context that's understandable uh, so they're not completely removed. Uh, one of the problems that we have um, because of the nature of our collections are these often personal curiosities that the collections are made up of objects that are um, of personal interest to an individual and then we use those objects in, a, in trying to make them meaningful for their original culture. Um, so as curators slash academics, we have a really challenging prospect on our hands of how do we do that? How do we work with that material culture? Yeah, it's basically playing detective work, I think, as we have said, <laughs> constantly. And it's just trying to recreate that historical narrative, yes. like you said, visually. It's quite a challenge yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, it's, again, it's, it's making that a part of um, part of the object um, story mm. um, and, and being open about that process as well. Uh, as you say, I think um, in in more recent years, um, the thinking around um, provenance um, and being open about provenance mm. has changed. But again, it's just it's making those processes uh, more visible um, to to your. Um, but. Yeah, I think I think provenance is a fascinating topic in its own right. Yeah, you can write just theses on that ah, alone. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but then fundamentally, you know, the Eaton Myers collection and then the archaeology collection, and I know uh, the Danford collection as well. They are teaching collections. So how is that different, say, than? A collection in the British Museum, for example, how how would you deal with that differently as a curator, Anna? Um, as as you say, it's part of their core purpose, and mm. so it's always a balance between um kind of their use and their long term care, um. But it's about um managing that risk, mm. um. So obviously, if if something is um is is more um, liable to break um, obviously we wouldn't have that as part of a handling collection mm. um, uh, th- that would be out on on display um, and uh, would make good use of, uh, of Im- images mm. um, but obviously it's, it's, it's always a delicate balance between use and care especially with a collection like ours that um, I mean we have to mitigate against risk when they're out on public display as well so it's, it's part of the nature of the collection mm. as well um, I don't know, as a student, I found handling objects and just being close to objects a very fulfilling process and helping me in the process of learning. I don't know, have you guys um, found the same? Yeah, I mean, it's fundamental for my own research is very much based on material culture. It's, yeah, it's a real learning process to be able to actually hold something. And although facilitating things like teaching and object handling um, with something like the Myers collection, it's the same as, as Anna said, it, it, there are certain things you would just never use for object handling because it's far too fragile, it's far too delicate. Um, but especially for an ancient Egyptian collection, it's something that appeals to almost anybody, regardless of mm. their level of knowledge of um, Egypt. There's been groups I've had of, of varied um, knowledge that when you open drawers, have you know gasped 
in shock at what there is, um, and it's just a really nice <laughs> it's a really nice experience to, yeah. to you know to facilitate. So, um, but certainly like to as a student to be able to do that sort of thing to be able to hold something from the the culture that you are studying mm. um yeah it's incredibly valuable it's a very powerful thing mm. isn't it really it definitely. Really and again it's a, it's a way of like perhaps more emotionally connecting with mm. you know, this, this abstract emotion yes as well. yeah um i mean uh so in in recent years during the 2014 and 18 uh commemorations of world war one then we've done some um, object teaching uh, from our heritage collection. Um, and it's a very different thing to think about um, sort of the, the trench experiences um, of a, a sort of uh, an everyday soldier. Mm -hmm. And then you hold artifacts that were owned by, mm. um, by someone who died in the trenches. Yes. Um, again, it's, it's a way of kind of emotionally connecting with, with this abstract notion mm. that you're studying. Mm. It's it's um I think it's a very worthwhile thing to do and as you rightly said it is that emotional connection, um and I think that's all we have time for today. Hope you enjoyed learning all about the collections here um within the department and across the university. My sincerest thanks to Anna Young, Jennifer Turner, and of course Kate Robertshaw for bringing their insight and for a fast, fantastic discussion even. Don't forget to check out Kaha's Twitter and Instagram feeds where you'll find images and information from today's podcast. Don't forget also that this is the first episode in a series of six and we're going to, over the course of the next five episodes, talk about objects from Egypt, Greece and Roman cultures to name a few. So I look forward to welcoming you back next time for more stories from objects. Mm -hmm.